Let's pray. Most holy God, help us to know you. Apart from religion, apart from practice, apart from a to-do list, apart from a desire to earn your love, help us to know and experience you for who you are. As we delve into your character, as we look to your attributes and we recognize how holy you are and how powerful you are and how marvelous you are, let that knowledge alone shape and transform who we are. Help us to be like you. Help us to see who you have called us to be. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Sorry, I should have said that before I prayed, right? We got all faithful still standing up. <laughs> That's good. So we're going to start a brand new series this week called Majoring on the Minors. Anybody had, prayer, had quiet time in Amos or Obadiah this week? No Nahum fans? Micah on the first top of your list there? Nobody? Really? They're calling the minor prophets for a reason. They're scripture. They have powerful stories that tell us stuff about God, about how, what it means to be us. But not, we don't spend a lot of time there. So we're going to spend the next few weeks kind of scrolling through some minor prophets and picking up some major attributes of God. That's really the, theme, the way we're going to look at it, is we're going to ask ourselves as we dig into these passages, what does this story about this prophet or this word from this prophet teach us about God himself? So we're going to pick up a major attribute of God from a minor prophet. We're going to major on the minors. So maybe it wasn't what you were thinking, but I think it's cool. The newest Indiana Jones movie finally came out. If you know me at all, you know I was excited about that. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was better than the last one. I'll just say that. Um, but I grew up with Indiana Jones. I mean, he came out when I was like 10, 11, 12 kind of thing. And he was one of my heroes. I was all, when the first one came out, I was a little confused that Han Solo was now running around with a whip. But, you know, it was, it was one of those things where you go, dude, Harrison Ford's just my hero. Forget Han and Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford's awesome. But our, we have those heroes. We have those childhood heroes. And there are reasons why those attributes resonate with us. Like, how cool to be to have a whip. Matthew's all about Indiana Jones and has a whip. Just saying. It's not a huge 10-foot bull whip, but he does own a whip. Um, he also owns the whole paraphernalia of his own version anyway to look like Indy. But when the movie came out, that got me thinking about this. We have these heroes that have attributes about them that we admire or resonate with that we end up aspiring to be. I want to be Indiana Jones. I want to be Han Solo. I want to be... Whoever else Harrison Ford, get off my plane, you know, whatever. I mean, we have these childhood heroes that we idolize and model our life after. And it's attributes that we draw because I can't, still can't swing a whip. So that really isn't the attribute. It's just how cool and awesome. I wanted to do, anybody, everybody watched those movies for five minutes wanted to get into archaeology. I mean, you did until you figured out that 99.9% .9 of that is reading old books in a library. Right? And you go, well, maybe I'll change my major. <laughs> you know? But there are attributes that we, just, we, we admire. Well, as we dig into these prophets over the next few weeks, my theory and my, understand, my guess is, and I know it's been true in my own spiritual walk, is that if we're meant to follow Jesus, if we're meant to worship God with our life, and we're meant to be like Jesus, then one of the ways that we can do that is to find those attributes 
of God and allow them to shape who we are. I, I really believe that even is more important than a worldview. You've heard people having a Christian worldview. I think it's probably more important to have a wonderful and accurate view of who God is than a view of the world. Everybody talks about having a worldview. Hey, you think right about the world, you'll live right. True to a degree. But I think it's way more important to capture in our minds who God is and what his nature is like and what he's like. Because if we understand it, it begins to shape who we are. And so we're going to open these passages. And we're going to, in this passage, today we're in Amos. If you haven't read Amos before, I'll set some, some ground rules there. But if I discover something about God and I know it to be true, and I trust it, and I allow that truth about God to shape me, it will change how I respond. And we'll get into that, the specifics of that as we do this. So let me set the background for Amos. Amos is one of the minor prophets. His ministry was around 760 B.C. The experts are always like 800, 8th century, you know, like somewhere in there. And he, he was a shepherd. He's not like the other prophets. He's not a full-time prophet. You had prophets that were, that's all they did was do prophecy. Amos was a shepherd, and he owned a vineyard. He was actually fairly affluent, lived in Jerusalem, the, the southern, or Judah, the southern half of the kingdom of Israel, when the kingdom of Israel had been divided. So you've got northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. They've split at this point in history, and he's living in the southern kingdom. Guess where God calls him to prophesy? He had to go to the country up north. <laughs> you know what I mean? He had to go up north to prophesy. God called him to Israel, not Judah. Like, if I got ever appointed to Oxford, that would be what we're talking about here, okay? He got called up north to go and condemn wealth and corruption in the nation of Israel. All right, so he's in 760 B.C. Both kingdoms are doing really, really well. Israel's doing really, really well. Judah's doing really, really well. He calls them in this ministry. And, but the problem is the country is corrupted. There's social injustice, economic exploitation, and religious corruption. Because the world is so different now. Think about that. God's nation was affluent because of corruption. There was social injustice. There was religious corruption. Sound familiar at all? Haves and have-nots, political corruption, religious corruption, pastors that are facing moral failure or, not, or managing big church egos instead of the people of God. Things are totally different today than they were back then. Yikes, right? But this is Amos' job. He used to go up there and he used to preach, them, preach to them about how they have failed God. Because God has told Amos that their prosperity is not because of God's blessing, but because of the corruption. Now think about that for a minute. How often do we hear about America being God's nation, that God has blessed America, and if we don't do things, then God's not going to bless us anymore? And that's why we're prosperous? You hear that. Israel was prospering, but it wasn't prospering because God had laid their hand, His hand on them. They were prospering because they were taking advantage. And there was economic injustice and corruption. So Amos, having said all that, this is chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel, so northern kingdom. Fallen, no more to rise. 
is made in Israel, forsaken on her land with no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that marched out a thousand shall have a hundred left. That which marched out a hundred shall have ten left. For thus says the Lord the house of Israel, the house of Israel to the house of Israel, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, do not seek into Gilgal and, and cross over into Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will break out against the house of Joseph like fire, and will devour Bethel with no one to quench it. Ah, you that turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground, the one who made the Pleiades and the Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkness of the day into night, the darkness and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash against the strong so that the destruction comes upon the fortress? They hate the one who reproves in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks the truth. Therefore, because, of, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain. You have built up houses of hewn stone and you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards and you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are, are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You afflict the righteous who take a bribe. You afflict the righteous who take a bribe and push against the needy in the, in the gate. Therefore, the prudent will keep silent in such a time. For it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord, the God of the hosts, will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord in all the, square, all the squares there will be wailing. In all the streets they will say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and those skilled in lamentation to wailing. In all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Well, there's a cheerful passage for today. <laughs> He is pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel for its corruption. Could you hear that? You have, doubt, you have forced yourself on the poor. You've taken bribes. You've, you've caused all of this. But he starts in the first two verses. It, the first two verses are probably the most bleak. It's the lament. He says, Israel has fallen and it's not going to get this is not one of these prophecies where the prophet comes along and says, hey, if you'll repent, God will bless you, everything will be great. He is telling them they're done. They've gone too far. They've pushed too far. The nation of Israel is going to be judged. A nation is going to come in and conquer them. Those cities that have a thousand will only have a hundred left. Those who have a hundred will only have ten left. Is a statement of the hammer is about to drop. 
Israel is going to fall and there is no one to lift her up. If you know your Israel history at all, and I said there's these two kingdoms now, Israel goes into captivity first and Judah later. So they're flourishing right now. And Amos is telling Israel that you've prospered because of corruption and that God, the, God is going to allow you to be crushed. And so he's lamenting the fact that Israel has no rescue. And they're lamenting the fact that Israel is not coming back around. It's going to go be on the mat for a while. So what does that tell us about God? It's kind of a heavy statement, isn't it? Now remember, he's talking to a nation here, not people. Okay? So he's not saying, hey, you've sinned too much, it's too late for you, you're toast. That's not what he's saying. This is a pronouncement against a nation. Now, we could apply that today. What did I just say about America now? Right? Same social injustice, same corruption, same religious weakness, same all of it. Could God allow us to be put on the mat? Sure. But that's not the intent of the passage. Don't take this and go, oh, I've sinned too much. God's going to crush me. Because that's not the intent of the passage. Because throughout the passage, you get these phrases, seek God and live. Right? So they're in there somewhere, and I'll explain this a little better in a minute, but in there somewhere is this hope of seek God and live. But nation, as far as a nation state is concerned, at least for the foreseeable future, is about to be delivered into captivity. What does that tell us about God? What attribute does that... Whoa, we've got to archaeology this thing with Indiana Jones. What in the world is this telling us about who God is? It tells us that ultimately God is just. That He will punish sin. That he will and can stand in judgment because he is holy. But he's not ruthless holy. He's just. That when a nation disobeys him... Now, remember, I'm talking about this from a national scale for a reason. Who does God have a covenant with? The nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy, what does he tell them? I will be your God and you will be my people. If you keep my commandments, you will flourish. If you disobey them, you will be cursed. All this is, is a fruition of that. If, I told you, you can summarize the Old Testament in 30 seconds. God's people did good for a while. They disobeyed God. God allowed judgment. They repented. They were restored. God's people did good for a while. <laughs> There's the pattern. Right? At some point, at this point in Old Testament history, God goes, you know what? <clears throat> It's time for the hammer to drop again. A nation is going to crush you. Your army of a thousand becomes a hundred. You're going to face military defeat. You're going to be carried away. But seek God and live. What should Israel have done? If Amos is proclaiming this and it's too late for the nation state, then there's some implications there that people within the nation state can do what? They can still seek God and live. That's part of what's at play here. Yep, the nation's going to fall. We've gone a bridge too far. I am just. We have a covenant deal. If you keep my commandments, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you, nation of Israel. 
guess what? I'm going to allow whoever this invading army is to come in and carry you away. See Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, <laughs> and there is going to be a judgment. Now, we also know that God doesn't just go, I'm wiping my hands of you forever, right? Or we wouldn't be standing here right now. But the first thing we understand is that God is just, but he also loves us too. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Okay, so, just so you know, first of all, the phrase, seek the Lord, is an Old Testament phrase for go to the temple and worship. So he's saying, worship me. That's what seek the Lord means. Worship God. But then he said, but it's almost tongue-in-cheek, because what he follows with is, don't go here, don't go here, don't go here. That one's going to be destroyed. That one's going to be in exile. No, 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 no. Worship me. But all the places of worship are going to be destroyed by this invading, judging army. In fact, Beersheba is actually in Judah. Wait a minute. I thought all the, nor yeah, all the northern places are going to be destroyed. But why can't, we go, why can't we get below the border and worship in Beersheba? It's not going to be available to them. Beersheba was a place where northerners would actually go on a pilgrimage to go worship in Judah. It's not going to be available to them. There's nowhere you can go, physical place. Here's part of the judgment. You're not going to be able to go to the house of God and seek me and live. It's not going to happen. Because they're all going to be brought to nothing. So he's laying out this judgment. Seek me and live. Nothing you can do, no place you can go, no worship you can do can reverse the course of what's coming. Note verse 6. It says, no one will quench that's the phrase that's in the translation that I read. There's no, way, there's no way to quench God's judgment on this thing. Nation of Israel. Why? Look at verse 7. By the way, my bad eyes are trying to read the Old Testament that I'm not as familiar with. So I'm stumbling with it in case you haven't noticed. I'm just giving that disclaimer right now. Like even finding verse 7. There it is. Okay. Ah, that you turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground. What does that mean? Wormwood is bitter. That you would turn justice to something that is bitter and bring righteousness to the ground. Righteousness, in the Old Testament sense, is that keeping of that covenant that I mentioned. You're making justice bitter and you're not keeping the covenant promise. You're part of the deal. You're bringing righteousness to the ground. That's why this is going to happen. Verse 8 and 9. Who is doing the judging here? The one who created the stars. It even names constellations. Orion and Pleiades, right? The one who put the stars in the heavens. The one who controls the oceans. That is who is executing the judgment. What does that tell us about God? God has the power to execute judgment. Because He is the standard. It tells us that God is holy. God is without sin. God did not fail in the covenant. Remember I told you the summary is, God's people would do good, they would do bad, God would judge them, they'd repent, repeat, right? Who was faithful through that entire rhythm? 
God. Right? God never failed the people of Israel. People of Israel failed God, nation of Israel. You with me? But then God would allow the judgment to happen. Why? What happens to the people when, God, when the nation of Israel would face judgment? They would repent. They would realize that it's God who is in control and has the power, who has allowed the judgment to happen. And they would realize that when a judge or a prophet or a king would bring them back, that same God had the power to rescue and redeem. It was not up to them. It was not about them. That God has the power all along to allow the judgment to happen. That's hard for us to swallow. But think about the implications of that being part of God's nature. That if God has the, is, is the right standard, He is the holy standard, we're supposed to live up to, but we're just like the people of Israel in the Old Testament. What happens when we try to live up to that standard? Anyone? Anyone good at it? <laughs> Who here is perfect? I'm not raising my hand. I'm demonstrating. Anybody here? Raise your hand. I thought so. What does that mean? If God's the standard and He's going to judge sin, what is the implication for us? Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> We're the people of Israel in the story to a degree, right? He's the standard. Verse 10 through 12, it talks about hating justice. It talks about taking bribes. He's naming specific things that this nation had done to oppress the poor, to step on their throats, to live with corruption. And that's how they promoted themselves. And that's how they allowed their nation to roll. It was unjust and it was wrong. And God says, what we know is by this, this standard is that God says what is good. And it's good because God says it's good. God is the standard this way. God declares what's right and what's wrong. Not you and not me. What a lot of people do nowadays is what? Yeah, I like this part of the Bible, but not this part. I'm okay with God will give you money and you should take care of it. But I'm not okay with give how much? I'm okay with this is the way I'm supposed to live in this case, or God says to be loving to others, but it says this about this. Yeah, not so much. We are not the arbitrators of what's right and wrong. God is. And when we refuse, and I, don't mean, I mean intentionally refuse, when we look at what God says is good and go, yeah, no, we're elevating ourselves to who? If God's the standard for right and wrong, and we're deciding what's right and wrong, who are we claiming to be? God. Here's the scripture. Here's the authority for our life. Here's what God says is right and wrong. And we sit over it and go, yeah, that's out of date. That doesn't count. That's not really what he meant here. Who am I making myself out to be? Right? When we are supposed to allow this to tell us what's right and what's wrong. Now, sometimes I get it. You read a passage, I read a passage. We come to different conclusions. <laughs> you perfect, me neither. There's a passage in Scripture that actually says that we're able to understand what's written there because of the Holy Spirit working our life. 
that we couldn't understand what we're reading if the Holy Spirit didn't go, this is what it says. We can't even get it straight because of our fallen nature. We might miss something. Partly because our fallen nature goes, I don't want to listen to that. (laughs) Not because we don't understand it, but because we do understand it and reject it. That's breaking the covenant. It's one thing to sin like, oops, I sinned again. It's another thing to look at God's standard and go, no, that's not for me. That's rebellion. That's raising yourself to being a God over Scripture, over life, and over your life. That is what God allows to be judged. God's not going to sit in heaven and squash you for every little sin you've ever done wrong. That's not how it works. But He will allow you to be disciplined when you're in open rebellion against Him. When you look at what God offers and say no, when when He offers you Jesus and you go, that's not for me, that's the unforgivable sin. Don't follow Jesus. I mean, reject him. By that, I mean reject him. Like, I'm not going to be a Christian. That's unforgivable, right? Because our, in our relationship with Jesus, we get escape from the judgment. We get the pass. We get forgiveness. We get grace. You're trying to live to here and you don't make it. Guess who covers the gap? Jesus does. Because it's always been God who's faithful to the covenant, not us. It's always been God who's, when we're not faithful, who has provided a way out so that you may stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, 15. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But when you are tempted, God is faithful. And He will provide a way out so that you may stand up under it. He'll help you resist temptation if you choose to. But when you fail, God is faithful to forgive you if we confess our sins. If we're Israel, if we should, what Israel should have done? Repent, 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 repent. <laughs> Uphold justice in the first place. Uphold God's covenant in the first place. God is the moral authority and has the st- and ha- is the standard and has the authority to judge. Toward the very end of the passage in verse fifteen, Amos does kind of equivocate a little bit. He says. Maybe if you seek God and live, there's some chance that God will relent. It's in there right before he pronounces things about wailing. There's some little glimmer, even in this proclamation about Israel's not going to stand up. Amos kind of goes, you might as well try. (laughs) It's almost like, hey, maybe he'll relent. I don't know. What that tells us about God is this. God will accomplish His goals. Because if God's providing a way out, if God's providing a way through judgment by grace in Jesus, that's why He sent Jesus in the first place. And we're now under a new covenant. The big, big sigh of relief to this whole sermon. This is old covenant. We're under this thing called the new one. Whew. Okay? What is the new covenant? It's not based in works. It's not based in keeping God's law. It's based in faith in Jesus. God doesn't send Jesus. You have no faith. You have no hope. You have no future. But what this reveals about God is that He has already 
planned and will carry out his plan to redeem and restore everything. Nation of Israel had a shot. We're pretty good. We're not good. Okay, we're good again. <laughs> Sooner or later, God goes, all right, plan B. Not really plan B. Original plan. I shouldn't have even said plan B. Because guess what? The promise of God to follow through on this plan is all the way back in Genesis 3. And if you're keeping score, that's long before this period, right? When he looks at Adam and Eve in the garden and says, You have failed, but your descendants will crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 3, before Israel does anything wrong, before you're born and do anything wrong, God has already said, I have a plan to restore this mess. It's going to be nasty along the way. Nations will fall because they didn't listen to me and keep my covenant. But in the end, I will accomplish my mission. Now, I said at the outset that when we look at attributes of our heroes, they should shape how we think about the world. And when I said, I don't mean Christian worldview, I mean God view. If God's holy and I'm not, if He's the standard and I'm not, then my goal is to try to live up to that standard to a degree. But when we realize we're never going to, when we realize those two truths, God's holy, I can't measure. That changes our relationship with God. Because we are dependent on Him for the way through. The Messiah He sent is the way through. And when you have a God who is holy, when you have a God who is the moral standard, when you have a God who has the power and the authority to accomplish His mission, then there has to be a small piece of us that knows that if we belong to God, we're safe, even in the midst of chaos and judgment. Then when you realize that one of the attributes of God is that He is holy, you also realize that you're not. But when you realize that God is loving, you realize you have a reason for hope. But you better pursue, seek God and live. Because God is holy. And God is right. And God is the one who can declare righteousness. He is the one who can set the standard of what's righteous and what's not. You realize that God is that, that He's holy and all-powerful, and you're not. That shapes your relationship with God, especially when you realize He's just as loving and forgiving as He is just and holy. The cross was the perfect marriage of those two. Because God's just and holy, He can't not judge sin. But because he's loving and wants to forgive, he had to provide a way to both punish sin and forgive. And that is what Jesus endured on the cross. God's judgment for all of our sin. Because God has to judge because he's just. But we're forgiven because God is loving and merciful and Jesus paid the price for us. God's perfectly loving but he's also perfectly just. That's why we need Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we're majoring on the minors. We're looking at a period of your history 
where you declared yourself holy judge over people who needed to follow you. Lord, forgive us when we don't follow that standard. Transform us so we will want to follow that standard. But most of all, Lord, we thank you this morning that you provided a way out under it. In Christ's name, amen.